Our scripture this evening is 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 16a. I know your bulletin may say 21, but we're going to 16a. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 16a. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So, it can be satisfying to find that last missing puzzle piece somewhere under the table and the fear that all of your puzzling time and effort might end on a frustrating note evaporates. Especially when you were positive that you had seen that piece earlier, when you were organizing the outer pieces and grouping colors, and even more especially when You didn't just roll the dice and pick this puzzle up at a thrift store. You paid full price for it. And so you had every expectation that all the pieces would be there. Well, God's word is complete in its instruction for us in righteousness. And 1 John isn't missing any crucial puzzle pieces on how a saint may have confidence that they are in an unbreakable union with Christ. And as we continue through and finish up uh, uh, the first part of chapter 4 tonight, we find that John is fitting together several pieces that he's already organized in piles of similar theological shapes and color and introduced us to in previous sections. In order to complete the puzzle of how we may have confidence in Jesus while enduring false teachers, while looking forward to the day of the Lord, and wrestling with self-condemnation. Some important pieces that we've seen are the wiles of the false prophets are undermined when we understand that Jesus is the Son of God, manifest in the flesh, and anointed by the Father to be our propitiation and our advocate. That is, he was appointed to the task of receiving the curse of the law and the wrath of God that we deserved. And once that was finished, to be an eternal reminder to the Father at his right hand that for those who trust in Jesus, the law has no power of condemnation over us. And so, another related piece is that we look forward to the final day of judgment, and the law instead becomes a source of confidence for us, whereby We use it like gym equipment to train in righteousness. And as we do, our family resemblance to our righteous God grows and our expectation of meeting God face-to-face is not dreadful but joyous. Plus, when we face the harsh condemnations of our own hearts, we find that God is greater than our hearts. God's love was set upon his people before the foundations of the world. For God is love, 
and his redemptive plans were saturated in love and freely made apart from any influence of good or bad works on our part. So these are some of the puzzle pieces John has thus far introduced and grouped for quick access so that the puzzle image is now rapidly coming together and nearly complete. And so, in this latter part of the book, the apostle has appropriately escalated his pastoral and worshipful tone. Now, of course, John is known for having an evangelical, gospel-centered bent, saturated in themes of love and new life, but chapter 4 is something rather special, as John uses some permutation of the word love more densely here, specifically in verses 7 to 21, than he or any other Bible author uses the word in any other chapter of the entire Bible. On average, he uses the word love here nearly twice a verse. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a close second. But just as John is anchoring us in the love that God has for his people and the special love his people will have for those same people, that is, among one another, John pauses here to make sure that all of this lovey-dovey talk is never separated from orthodoxy, from right doctrine, and from a well-articulated confession about who Jesus is and what our hope in him is. And the person who steps on the stage in the midst of this chapter to make sure love is doctrinally accurate is the last person that some may expect. Because often, the one who steps in and insists on splitting hairs doctrinally is seen as the opposer of love, the killjoy, the drag, you know, the Pharisees, the Presbyterians, the spirit quenchers, the ones who are sometimes accused of believing that the Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Bible. But the one whom John calls our attention to, who makes sure that our love is grounded in an orthodox confession of faith, is the Holy Spirit himself. And so tonight, this crucial piece of the puzzle, though the Holy Spirit is not a piece, God has no parts, this piece of of John's doctrinal argument is placed in his rightful spot so that we see not only how we may have confidence and persevere in Christ, but why we are able to. Tonight, then, we'll be getting to know a bit more closely the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in verse 13, By this we know that we abide or live or persevere in him, and he in us, because he has given of his spirit. Notice that John doesn't write, By him, by this we live in him, but by this we know that we live in him. We live because the Son accomplished the work that the Father anointed him to do. And we know that we live in, that we live in him by the work of the Spirit quickening us and making it real to us. Now, with this language, John is reaching up to chapter 3, verses 24, and picking up one of those puzzle pieces that he's already grouped. And there he says almost precisely the same thing. By this we know that he abides in us, that is, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And this in turn ties in with the 14th chapter of John's Gospel when he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And here, a couple more closely related pieces of the puzzle are placed. One, the Holy Spirit is entirely invisible, unknown, and unattainable to those who have not been made alive by the Spirit. And two, a unique aspect of the personality of the Spirit is that he is so about truth that one name he goes by is the Spirit of Truth. So where we saw last time that the love of God is made visible in the love of the Father sending the Son and love and our loving one another, we see here that apprehension of that reality as well as apprehension of all other spiritual truths are impossible unless the person of the Spirit of Truth decides to grant us spiritual sight. One reason this is important to know is that while false teachers were denying the physical incarnation of the Son, they were simultaneously claiming to have a a testimony inspired by God's Spirit. And that's why chapter 4 began in in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. It is amazing how many people have zero discernment when it comes to the topic of spirits. My family the other day passed a van on the road advertising pet psychic services. Well, that is just conveniently non-falsifiable. But the Father, the Son, and and the Spirit of Truth triunely abide in us and us in God, and the Spirit of Truth is not afraid to propose some falsifiable evidence of his presence. And the first one, amidst all this love, 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 is very doctrinal, which is, verse 14, that we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Through the person and work of Jesus, the apostles saw the invisible God, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, they believed and testified to it. And now we hear their testimony, and by the same Spirit, testifying through the complete canon of Scripture, we see Jesus and believe and testify of him that he is the Savior of the world. That is, he is the only possible Savior anywhere in the world at any time. As Israel's only deliverer from Pharaoh was the great I Am, so the sinner's only deliverer from death and judgment is Jesus, who, as we heard from our pastor earlier this morning, claimed before his accusers to be that very same I Am. The Trinitarian theme then here is plain. The Father sent the Son into the world as Savior, and the Father and the Son also sent the Spirit into our hearts as witness. And with that, we see another aspect of the unique personality of the Spirit. He is very happy to to be humbly in the background pointing to Jesus. So much so that the primary test of the Spirit's presence is that, the, is that the one with the indwelling Spirit will testify of Jesus accurately, at least in the basic essentials of his, his flesh and his curse-taking mission and his exclusivity as the only Savior. And this is a big reason that 
Though it was misguided and a misunderstanding of our place in redemptive history, the ancient and medieval church were all right with executing heretics. It was seen as having potentially eternally an eternal effect on any soul with an earshot of such a spirit of teaching. Now, of course, our whole topic at hand is that the real foundation of our assurance is the unbreakable work of the triune God, so there's no need for us to quake at false spirits. But the point remains that any spirit who does not testify that Jesus is the only Savior of the world is not the spirit of truth. But, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, a few things are important here. First, John has used a lot of we's in talking about giving of a good testimony or a confession of Jesus. And so, surely corporate confession, or something like the Nicene Creed, which we did this morning, is important for the overall health and the unity of the church. But whoever here draws our attention to the reality that a personal testimony is also necessary. Second, the language of confession here is not the same as the ninth verse of chapter 1, for example, that told us to make a practice of confessing our sins. Here, what is expressed is not so much a succession of testimonies. John is talking much more about a particular event. Of course, sharing your faith is not a bad thing, and and speaking of Jesus often is a great thing. But the testimony spoken of here is like that of a new church member professing their faith publicly before the church. It only needs to be particularly done once. It may be repeated for confidence, and that's fine. It may also be merely looked back upon as evidence by which one may be confident or by which your local church may have hope should you go to be with the Lord. Third, Augustine got a lot of things right. But unfortunately, one thing that he and many others get wrong is the idea that we speak the gospel or our testimony of Jesus with our lives. We do not. This is a doctrinal confession, which is appropriately articulated by Christians through the spirit of truth. And in that way, we become like the spirit, ready to take a humble back seat and not put ourselves forward as part of the gospel. We testify that Jesus is the good news. And to that, Jesus says in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this testimony ought to be public and not private. And it doesn't have to be continually repeated to give us confidence that the Spirit is working in us and we are therefore abiding in God and God in us. In fact, for those whose time on this side of heaven is short, nothing else at all is needed to have confidence that one is in Christ. The thief on the cross, for example, believed and confessed Jesus and had time, and had time on this earth for virtually nothing else. 
There was no time to walk in the light and grow in righteousness, and there was no time to get baptized or anything else. And because we have the special revelation of Jesus telling us that he would be with Jesus in paradise that day, we have this unique stamp on him so that we know that he was numbered among the elect. And he would therefore, in time, have grown to some degree in walking in the light had he had more time. And if he hadn't grown much, he may have occasionally suffered from lack of confidence, but he would never have truly been lost by Jesus. So while for Adam and Eve, faith primarily expressed itself in making babies, and for Abraham, it primarily expressed itself in departing to a new land, for Noah, it was building a boat, for the New Testament Christian, it primarily expresses itself through testifying of Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So, for those who testify of Jesus by the spirit of truth, verse 16, we have come to know and have come to believe the love that God has for us. That is, we have come to believe in the love that God had for us before making the world, the love that he has for us now, and the love that he will continue to pour out on us for eternity. And so the box top puzzle image looks like this then. We know that we live in God and God in us because he has given us of his spirit, verse 13. And we know he has given us of his spirit because we have come to testify that Jesus is the son of God, that's verse 15, and to live in love, verse 16. That is, if we tarry long before we go to meet Jesus. And we can then understand why it is that in the 16th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus says, I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Because Jesus has ascended upon finishing the work on earth that his father sent him to do, Pentecost could come and a great outpouring of the Spirit was unleashed that we may abide closely, not only in the Father and the Son, but also in the Spirit. So may we ever be thankful that along with the Father and the Son, we get to eternally abide with the unique third person of the triune God. May we be passionate about testifying of Jesus accurately as the spirit of truth leads us to do amidst a life of learning to also walk in love. And may we learn from him the happy humility of putting Christ in the spotlight before ourselves. For Jesus is the one who came in the flesh to take our sins upon himself. Praise to the Father for his love in sending the Son on that mission, 
praise to the Son for fulfilling it, and praise to the Spirit for giving us eyes to see and rejoice in it. Amen. Would you pray for me? Pray with me.